everybody within the sound of my voice. Understand that we at war and you don't have a choice. Check us out every Monday on the ground, the podcast that celebrates the artistic science and community organizing. Follow us on Twitter, J4J underscore USA, or our website, www.j4jalliance.com. And you can also peep us on Facebook at the Journey for Justice Alliance. We'll see you every Monday on the ground. Avarigani, Jumbo, what's happening? What's the news? Peace, Hotep, and what up, though? This is your man, Brother G2, once again coming at you with the On the Ground podcast. This is the space where we illuminate the artistic science and community organizing and also tell the stories from the perspective of the people directly impacted. We don't believe in safe spaces, but this is a brave space where we can actually talk about the real issues that are happening in our communities and talk to people who are actually making a difference. You've heard me say this, good people, time and time again. One of the things that the oppressor works to do is to make us feel hopeless, to make us feel isolated, to make us feel as if there is no way that we can win, that we can transform our communities and ultimately transform our world. But we're here to tell you that that is not the case. There are people all over the country fighting for justice. There are people all over the country that are enduring injustice and walking out with their head high and still demanding dignity and respect. And we are honored to have with us two sisters from that struggle. So I'm going to ask you all just to keep your mind open for a second and remember in 2013 when we saw a large number of primarily African-American educators indicted and put on trial and convicted for cheating on Atlanta standardized tests. And we haven't heard much about this story since then, but it was amazing to us because we had to ask the question, well, if these sisters and brothers are on trial, what about the Houston miracle that, you know, pumped millions of dollars into No Child Left Behind, which was a fraud? What about the claim of school improvement in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, when it was proven that the Bessie board cooked the books because seven years after Katrina, 79% of the children were still going to D or F graded schools. And so they lowered the standards in order to make the schools look more successful. What about the 27 no bid contracts that David Vitale, the former chairperson of Chicago Board of Education, gave to the Academy of Urban School Leadership, a contract school, which he used to be the board president of? When are they held accountable? So You know, we know that there's not even a double standard. It is just a racist standard that we're dealing with. But we have some sisters with us today that are going to share that story. So I'm asking you to listen because I want you to understand the depth of what we are dealing with. So with us today, we have Ms. Shani Robinson and Ms. Anna Simonton. And these are two of the educators from the Atlanta cheating scandal who are still fighting for justice and still fighting for their freedom today. So welcome to the On the Ground podcast, sisters. It's an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. And Anna is actually my co-author of ah, the book that I wrote. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So we're going to get into that because you wrote an amazing book and I want to find out where Thank people you. purchase it so I can make sure that we purchase a copy tonight. And the name of the book is None of the Above, The Untold Story of the Atlanta Cheating Scandal. So we're going to get a chance to talk with Ms. Shani Robinson and our co-author, Anna Simonton, to understand that tonight. So listen, every week, we always do a member spotlight. 
We want to lift up the work of grassroots community organizations that are making change, that are fighting for the right things in our community, whether it's education, whether it's housing, whether it's stopping police violence, whether it's the rights of young people, the rights of our seniors, any folks that are out here doing good community organizing work that are members of the Journey for Justice Alliance, we want to be able to lift them up. So today, I'm proud to just lift up a group out of Jersey City, New Jersey, and they are called Parent Advocates for Children's Education, better known as PACE. Now, PACE is a small but mighty parent advocacy group in Jersey City, New Jersey, that has organized for years to increase the voices of parents and community members in school decision-making and have been able to stop schools from being closed. And in recent years, they've actually won the expansion of community schools. And also they are tackling the issue of zero tolerance policies that target black and brown children. They just had a huge victory when the brother who they actually organized to get on the school board, his name is Lorenzo Richardson, ran a slate called the Children First Slate of all pro-public education advocates. And they were opposed by privatization forces who pumped a lot of money into the Jersey City race. But our people won. And now on the Jersey City School Board is a strong cadre of folks who believe in equity in public education. So to the on the ground family, if we could just give a salute to Parent Advocates for Children's Education, PACE, want to tell you all to keep the work going. And in our old struggle language, you want to say aluta continua, the struggle continues. Much love to PACE, Parent Advocates for Children's Education. Now, as the old school hip hop group Houdini used to say, when we gonna get to the good part? And it's time right now. <laughs> so what I, I love to do is see if Ms. Robinson, if you can introduce yourself first, you know, who you are and what brought you into education and you know why you wrote the book. My name is Shawnee Robinson. I was one of the teachers indicted and convicted in the Atlanta Public Schools cheating trial. I started off teaching at a school called Paul Lawrence Dunbar Elementary. It's in Mechanicsville. I taught for three years through a program called Teach for America. Ms. Simonton, can you just introduce yourself and just kind of say what your role was in this whole saga that we're dealing with? Yeah. So my name is Anna Simonton. Um, I was a freelance journalist at the time that this trial was going on. And I actually went to Atlanta Public Schools K through 12. One of the people who was charged and convicted was my middle school counselor. And so I was reporting on various issues in Atlanta, sort of seeing this go on, but wasn't paying too much attention to it, like many people, until the convictions were handed down. And I realized, my God, they have charged people such as this wonderful woman who I remember as my middle school counselor, who are now being, you know, taken off to jail and I was, you know, outraged and I was so honored and lucky that Shani, through the other reporting I had done, that she felt reflected, you know, the kind of integrity that she was looking for in a partner to try to tell her side of the story. She reached out to me and we collaborated on this book. I'm now an editor at a magazine called Scalawag that covers Southern politics and culture, lifting up the voices that aren't often heard in the South, communities of color, queer communities, indigenous, immigrant, et cetera. And I am co-founder of an organization called Press On that is being created to support movement journalism, journalism that is helping to advance social justice movements in the South. So I was a partner in telling this story. 
with Shani and, and it's really her story that needs to be told. So Shani, I mean, can you explain just your emotion when you realize that you were actually being indicted and ultimately convicted of something that you know you didn't do? I was devastated. And let me tell you how I even learned I was indicted. It was on Good Friday, March 2013. I was actually carpooling to work because I I had taught in Atlanta public schools for three years. And then I transitioned into the counseling field because I actually majored in psychology. Mm-hmm. And so I was carpooling with one of my coworkers to a group home that we serviced. And my husband called me and said that he saw my name scrolling across the bottom of the screen on the news. And he said I was charged with racketeering. And I was like, what? And he's, you know, he said, you need to call your attorney. I knew this was a serious crime dealing with money, but I really didn't know what racketeering was. And when I turned on the news that day, the media portrayal of the scandal was that educators had cheated on their students' tests to get bonus money. So the first thing that I'm thinking of is, wait a minute, I never even got any bonus money. Mm. So I I received zero dollars, nothing. But I was charged with racketeering. And later, one of the lead investigators testified that bonus money wasn't even really a factor. He said it provided little incentive as to why cheating occurred, but that is not how it was portrayed in the media. Not only that, I was a first grade teacher as in first and second grade test scores did not even count. They didn't Mm. count for the district targets, which were the benchmarks imposed by the APS school board and administration, Mm. nor did they count toward adequate yearly progress, which was, you know, the benchmarks, imposed by the federal government under the No Child Left Behind Act. Basically, just to give a a brief recap, the Atlanta Public Schools cheating scandal was a time period in which educators in Atlanta Public Schools were accused of changing their students' answers from wrong to right on a state-standardized test that was called the CRCT, the Criterion Reference Competency Test. And so this is how it all began. In December of 2008, the local newspaper called the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported suspiciously high test scores in five school districts across the state. Sonny Perdue was the governor at that time. He ordered an erasure analysis for the entire state to determine the number of wrong-to-right erasures on each test. So in February of 2010, the results come out from the erasure analysis, and they learned that there were 191 schools across the state of Georgia that had high levels of wrong-to-right erasures, and then there were another 178 schools that had a moderate level of erasures. And so former Governor Sonny Perdue sent in special investigators and the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, into Atlanta Public Schools, and there was one other county called Doherty County Schools because he wasn't pleased with the internal investigations that were done. So stemming from that special state investigation, the results from that came out in 2011, implicating a number of teachers in Atlanta Public Schools. Later that year, the GBI would release a report also implicating teachers in Doherty County, as Shawnee mentioned, But that investigation was actually swept under the rug. That school district was helmed by a white woman, whereas in Atlanta Public Schools, we had Dr. Beverly Hall, who at the time was seen 
as sort of a rising star in urban education, a black woman from Newark, New Jersey, who often clashed with the governor on political issues. And so those are some of the factors that we take into consideration as we ask the question, why in Atlanta did this investigation blow up as it did, whereas in Doherty County, where they determined that cheating was just as widespread, things were sort of swept under the rug. So what happened in Atlanta, as Doherty County receded from the limelight, the local district attorney, Paul Howard, in 2013, announced that he was bringing RICO charges, racketeering and conspiracy charges, against 35 educators, uh, including Dr. Beverly Hall, and including Shawnee, who um, had nothing to do with cheating and would later learn that she was accused of cheating by a co-worker who was offered immunity when the GBI was going into these public schools, pulling teachers out of classrooms in the middle of the day, no attorneys present, and saying, we have reason to believe that uh, you were taking part in cheating, but if you name names, you will have immunity from any prosecution that ensues. So innocent people were dragged in through this process. There were also people that did say that they took part in cheating. So we are not claiming that that didn't happen, but the investigation was so sullied. It was a dragnet in which it was very easy for people to be wrongfully accused. So these 35 educators were facing decades in prison. Racketeering and conspiracy charges were created to bring down the American mafia. This is now being leveled at public school teachers, administrators testing coordinators, principals. So people started to plead out because, again, the plea deals that were offered were community service, a fine, really a slap on the wrist in comparison with decades in prison. Shawnee was facing up to 25 years in prison. And so the people who refused these plea deals were the people that said, I really had nothing to do with this and I'm here to clear my name. And so we ended up in 2014 with 12 educators standing trial. Dr. Reveley Hall was one of them, and she um, sadly passed away before she was able to present her side of the story. And we saw a trial that was absolutely rife with injustice, and we can get into that, you know, as you see fit, but it ended with convictions, and these teachers are now continuing to appeal their case and fight for their freedom. And the media sensation that surrounded that trial really had a big part to do with we believe why those convictions were handed down in spite of the overwhelming evidence that there was no conspiracy to cheat. Even though cheating occurred, it was disparate, and there was not an orchestrated conspiracy, as many people were led to believe by the media coverage. Wow. So you mean to tell me that you all were charged under the RICO statute? Yes. That is unbelievable. That is unbelievable. So to add insult to injury... The narrative that we were some type of mobsters was played out even further with our bail bonds. Mine was set at $200,000, and it was one of the lowest. Oh, my God. A lot of my co-defendants, their bonds were set in the millions. Now, I would tell you our bonds were lowered, but it came at a, at a cost. They were lowered after we agreed to be placed under a gag order so that we couldn't talk to the media to tell our side of the story. And so that's why we got lower bonds. Just be quiet and get convicted. Correct. (laughs) So no one can talk to the media. Mm. And so when I turned myself in, it was Mm. the first time that I, you know, had seen the rest of my co-defendants. And so I heard all kinds of stories about how educators have been threatened during those GBI interviews. Mm. I heard a story about one GBI agent that laid his gun on the table during an interview. 
Another GBI agent threatened to take a woman's children away from her. They were threatened to have their pensions taken away. And I mean, people were scared. And you're dealing with educators who have never been in any real trouble outside of maybe a a speeding ticket. They've never been in any real trouble. And you have the GBI interrogating you. No attorneys were present. And I'm certainly not saying that everyone was lying. I think there were a lot of people that just told the truth and they just told what they knew. But there were a lot of people who were afraid and they were able to receive immunity for naming others. Yes, ma'am. That's how you got named. Correct. This is unbelievable. So, I mean, I hope to the on the ground family that we're hearing this. And while we're talking about schools, we've seen over and over again how inhumane treatment is masked as seeking justice. I'm pretty sure people have watched the film on Netflix when they see us. And these stories happen over and over and over again. And the one thing I would just like to share before we move forward is it screams the need for us to remember that every right that we have in this country, I'm talking about black and brown people and women, is a direct result of community organizing. Not activism. The fact that we can walk into Walgreens and somebody can't say, hey, nigga, where you going? And stop you at the door is a result of people organizing to break down those barriers, speaking power to power. We can no longer relax. We cannot act as if we live in a land that practices true democracy. We have to understand that there is a wolf that hunts us on a daily basis. And they will even take educators, people who made their life's work children, What could be more noble than that to say, I don't want to be an accountant. I don't want to be a real estate agent. I don't want to be a corporate CEO. I don't want to be on Wall Street. I want to make my life children. And to take those sisters and brothers and to place a gun on the table while you're interrogating them, to threaten to take away their family. You know, there was a situation in Chicago in 2013 when Rahm Emanuel closed 50 schools. There was a sister named Rosemary Vega, a good friend of mine, and her family, they were fighting to stop the closure of a school called Lafayette. Lafayette was the only CPS school that had a full orchestra. It was in the middle of the Humboldt Park community, which is a Puerto Rican neighborhood. And her family, her her husband, her, her children, and her occupied the school. And the police there threatened to take their children into the foster system unless they stopped the occupation. It was ridiculous types of intimidation. There was no understanding that all these parents were fighting for was a good school within safe walking distance of their home. So as my sisters continue, I'm just asking folks to process this, man, because as they're talking, I'm like being blown away because it's just the level of evil that we have to deal with you're not even safe when you make your life's work children. So forgive me for that interjection, but um, sister, please proceed. As you were talking, I thought about how my GBI interview went. In October of 2010 was when I got the phone call and the agent convinced me to meet him, strangely, in a mall parking lot (laughs) that wasn't too far from my house. I was very naive. I went (laughs) with the agent, no attorney present, because I didn't have anything to hide. And so I met with the agent 
And he asked me if any administrators at my school or the testing coordinator, did they ever place any pressure on me to change my students' answers? And I said, no. And then, of course, he asked me, well, did you change your students' answers? And I said, no. And like all of the educators they interrogated, I was asked to sign a pre-written voluntary statement form that basically said I didn't have any knowledge about cheating and that I didn't cheat. And so I would learn later that it, it wasn't just me who signed it. Most of the educators signed this form with no attorney present. Now, what the agents didn't tell us was that by signing this form, we could potentially be charged with a felony, <laughs> false statements and writings, which would later become the precursor for the RICO charges. So many people uh, signed that voluntary statement form, right? And of course, they tried to fight it tooth and nail by the time we got to like, the pretrial, but they let the case move forward. <laughs> yeah, I think, too, that one of the connections in terms of the example you gave about what's going on in, in Chicago and other cities, I mean, it's just heartbreaking. And I think that one thing that we do in the book is to kind of place what happened in Atlanta within this context of uh, the school privatization that's going on, the gentrification that's going on in our cities. And I think those are also some of the things that really connect the dots between what we've seen in Atlanta and what we've seen elsewhere. So we look at the ways that this cheating scandal, so-called cheating scandal, was really a narrative that was manufactured to justify some of the policies at the city level that are literally diverting education funds from the classroom to private developers. So we have something called tax allocation districts in Atlanta. Uh, Chicago has actually been a place where there it's called tax increment financing, but mm -hmm. they've had a lot of organizing to push back on that because it's a way to, to take public funds and give it over to private developers. In Atlanta, that mm -hmm. money's coming from property taxes that should be going to the city, the county, and the school district. And Atlanta Public Schools has missed out on $434 million since the year 2000 to build uh, luxury condos, boutique real estate, and other projects that are jacking up property values and pushing out the very children, because these are historically black and brown neighborhoods, pushing out the yeah. very children that those funds are meant to educate. And a lot of people in Atlanta haven't had the access to information to kind of follow what's going on with those tax allocation districts, but it did sort of surfaced in 2014 when pretrial hearings were going on in the cheating case. The city of Atlanta, even though they had stretched this deal with the school district to participate in this program and let their dollars be siphoned off, they had said, well, we'll at least pay you something of a flat rate sort of in lieu of taxes every year. The city wasn't even paying that. They were in arrears. The school board said, you owe us this money. And our mayor at the time, Kasim Reed, said, we're not paying you because the Beltline, which is our rails to trails project that is sort of one of the biggest drivers of gentrification in the city. He said the Beltline project is more popular than Atlanta public schools. So he was referring directly to the sort of sullied reputation of Atlanta public schools as a result of this manufactured cheating scandal to justify giving education dollars to developers to gentrify the city. So I think that's another you know, important direction that we go in the book and that really relates to some of the struggles that we see in other cities as we draw these connections. Just so that folks, you know, are following this tax increment financing dollars. And what are they called in Atlanta again? Tax, tax allocation, allocation districts. districts. 
tax yeah. allocation districts. In Chicago, the stated purpose of TIF dollars is to use those same tax resources to address blight. So the money is supposed to go to areas that are in need. But what they do, they have a term that they call porting, P-O-R-T-I-N-G, where wealthy districts can port TIF dollars from a neighboring district. So if you're downtown and the neighboring TIF next to you is the Bronzeville community on the south side of Chicago, the third or the fourth ward, you can actually loop the TIF dollars from that area in order to fund downtown development. So DePaul University got a brand new stadium built off TIF dollars that was supposed to go to working and low-income communities on the south side of Chicago. So I just want you all folks to hear just how bold and how unprincipled this is because Mm. what could be worse on the ground family? What could be worse than to sabotage the quality of life of a child? What could be worse than that? To consciously deny them of resources and opportunity, knowing what that would do to their life, what could be more evil? And these are the people who then say, we're going to put you in jail. Whether you cheated or not, you're going to jail. Just to piggyback off of what Anna was saying about the tax allocation districts and about the Beltline, there were 44 schools that were implicated in the GBI report, in the investigators report for the cheating scandal. Out of those 44 schools, 11 of those schools are where educators were pulled from to actually go on the RICO indictment. And if you look closely at those 11 schools, many of them are in tax allocation districts. You know, I think that's pretty interesting. My school, according to Fulton County tax records, was actually in the Beltline. This is why we had to write this book, because the phrase cheating the children was used repeatedly, referring to me and my co-defendants. And so, you know, we have to ask the question, who should really be held accountable for cheating these children. Mm-hmm. And also, just to get into how we felt the trial was being used, mm-hmm. um, in addition to these tax allocation districts, I started realizing that the trial was being used to undermine public education and promote privatization after there was an article released by the Atlanta Journal Constitution called D is for Darn Good Charter School. And this article came out during the middle of our trial, and it connected the APS cheating trial to everything that was wrong with APS while calling Drew Charter School a, and I quote, symbol of hope and renewal. So the bias toward corporate-run charter schools was pretty blatant right during the middle of our trial. Let's break this down and get to the core of it, because what you're hearing, family, is that This Atlanta cheating scandal was used to, one, demonize not only the teachers, but the schools, and then promote an alternative. So these schools should close, and these children should be allowed to go to, as the sister just said, darn good charters. Now, this is despite the fact that we know, not we hypothesize, we know that only one out of five charters outperform traditional public schools. That's 20%, right? So if you're a quarterback and you only complete one out of five of your passes, would you keep your job? If you're a baseball player and you only get a hit one out of every five times at bat, would you keep your job? So why is that dismal performance acceptable for black and brown children? And to go even further, we know 
that 50% of those schools that perform well are selective enrollment. So they can pick the children they want and kick out the ones they don't, and they're still batting 20%. So this is the alternative that they're offering for black and brown children. And why in many of the our American cities, what we're seeing, and I would love you sisters to speak to this, in many of our American cities, what we are seeing, and I, I'm not gonna use the word gentrification because I think the word gentrification is too mild. I think what we're seeing is a purge of black people from urban spaces. So in Chicago, in the year 2000, we were 53% of the population. Today, Chicago, African-Americans, and I just saw this data the other day, we are 29% of the population now. In less than 20 years, we've lost almost half of our people. In cities like uh, Washington, D.C., that was once known as Chocolate City, where we were up with over 70% of the population, Today, we're 46. Oakland, California, we were, you know, in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, we were over 55% of the population. Oakland today is about 26% African-American. I can go on. We can talk about Detroit. We can talk about Cleveland. We can talk about New Orleans, where America's most African city. And we are now 46% of the population in New Orleans. So I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but I also want to acknowledge what we're seeing. We're seeing school closings, charter school expansion, in other words, public education policy and housing policy weaponized against working and low-income black and brown families to clear us out of urban space. Would you all say that that's a safe analysis? Absolutely, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. Unfortunately, yes. And we see that too uh, in Atlanta and uh, with the charter school that Shawnee mentioned playing a a specific role in that process. So Drew Charter School was Atlanta's first ever charter school and it was founded by a developer named Tom Cousins who in the mid-90s put this proposal to the Atlanta Housing Authority. Renee Glover handed over a public housing complex called East Lake Meadows to a foundation that Tom Cousins started to quote unquote redevelop it into what they called mixed income housing. Well, that was a way to push out subsidized low income black families, but they didn't just go after the public housing. So this foundation that Tom Cousins started said, we also want to take over the local elementary school and turn it into a charter school because he said that would make the market rate units of that mixed income housing, quote unquote, desirable to the families that he wanted to be there. And of course, he's talking about middle class white families from the suburbs that they're trying to sort of lure in. And that Mm -hmm. and I use the word lure in quotes, too, because his son-in-law, who spearheaded this effort with him, said this is consistent with our effort to lure middle class families back to the city. And so the schools are being used as a linchpin in these real estate deals that are, as you said, purging black people from our urban neighborhoods. And that comes full circle with a policy that the governor at the time, Nathan Deal, in 2015 introduced called the Opportunity School District that was modeled on Louisiana's Recovery School District, Mm -hmm. which, as you named, uh, you know, turned many of the public schools, almost all the public schools in New Orleans into charters. They shopped that around as a model. And Mm -hmm. so on the day that the prosecution rested in the Atlanta Public Schools cheating trial, Nathan Deal introduces this this legislation sort of creating this paradox between, you know, the media is full of like recaps of this trial, you know, that's just painting teachers as these terrible, you know, cheaters. And at the same time, he's saying, you know, our schools are failing. And Mm -hmm. here's the supposed solution is a state 
not even agency, a sort of czar, a, a governor-appointed individual who would have the power to take over, quote-unquote, failing schools and turn them into charters. So as we see, everybody, the scam called school choice has several different tricks that they use. They will manufacture a crisis. They will claim to care about children who come from communities that they've never cared about. So how all of a sudden do you care about children when you've neglected our communities for decades? So I think it's really important that we're taking this in. We, we're beginning to run out of time a little bit. So I do want to ask Ms. Robinson if you can just explain a little bit about just um, where your case is now and how can people support? Well, there were 12 people that went to trial. 11 of us were convicted. There were two people that actually went to prison. We had been appealing our case and they handled their appeal a little. It was a little different than how we handled our case. But one of my co-defendants, Angela Williamson, was actually released from prison a few days ago. She spent eight months in prison away from her children and family. And one of my other co-defendants, Tamara Cotman, is actually still in prison. We don't know how much longer she will have. But there are seven of us that are still appealing. And the main thing is we were trying to get the judge removed from our case because there were so many things that he did during the trial. He tried to assist a state witness with identifying one of my co-defendants. You know, he had a private conversation with the district attorney before the verdict was released. He told the jury, whatever your verdict is, I will defend it until I die. He even tried to bully my co-defendants into taking the district attorney's sentencing agreement because he had initially told them that they could have an appeal bond and first-time offender status. And then when he learned that they weren't going to take the district attorney's sentencing agreement, he went back on his word. And, of course, our defense attorneys wanted to know why. And so he basically said, well, I guess I'm just an Indian giver. Mm. You know, so this is the kind of things that we had to deal with. Shine, if I could jump in, I just want to drive home that point that this judge was just theatrical in a way that was just so out of line every day of this trial. And I want to emphasize, this was the longest criminal trial in Georgia history. This lasted eight months. So when people wonder, how did the jury deliver this verdict if these people were innocent? It's because the prosecution had six months of witnesses afforded to them, and the defense only had a couple of weeks. And during the trial, the prosecution witnesses were contradicting each other to the point where the judge actually said, perjury is being committed daily here. And yet he would not strike any of that false testimony from the record. He would not allow for a mistrial. He was just full of antics, threatening to put defense attorneys in jail, going back and forth on emotion. So I'm sorry to cut you off, Shani, but I just had to oh, drive no. on this that, that what folks don't realize about what went on in this trial. So it's very important that they get him off the case, uh, as Shani was saying. Yes. And they have actually tried. They have asked him to recuse himself. He refuses, even though he actually retired and they reassigned our case to another judge. But even though he retired, he's still able to do like, I think they're called backlog cases. And so he wants to remain on our case. And they, my attorneys have even taken this issue to the Court of Appeals. They have done nothing to get him off of our case. So it was clear judicial misconduct and bias. So we have no idea how they're even allowing him to stay on this case. How can we support your fight right now? What can people do? Is things we can do on social media? 
Are there yes. phone calls that we can make? What Do you all have like a hashtag that you're working with? The best thing to do right now is to stay updated on our case. And you can go to our website, teacherontrial.com, and subscribe to our mailing list. There's a donation page for my defense fund. There's also a link to donate to Angela Williamson, my co-defendant who I was referring to, who spent eight months in prison mm. because she took a big hit financially. I'm on social media platforms at Shawnee Author. So I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And that's the best thing to do right now is just to stay updated, support if you can, because we're going to be sending out information where there may come a time where we, we may need you to make a phone call. So definitely staying updated is key. Well, once again, sisters, know that the Journey for Justice family is in 34 cities, but our network is, is much more vast than that. So when that time comes, consider us supporters and we will definitely kick in. Can you all say a little bit about the book and how can people get the book? Yes, the book can be found on Amazon.com, IndieBound, and Beacon Press. And the book is my story. It's more than a memoir um, because it's all of my experiences as far as being a teacher, as far as what happened during the trial, but it also connects the dots to a much larger picture, which is about the intentional destruction of public education in this country. We would love to think and all we have to do is work hard and, and, and obey the law and we'll be okay. But, you know, brother taught me before that, you know, the wolf feeds, whether you're doing the right thing or not, the wolf is going to eat and the wolf is going to hunt. And unfortunately for black people, we have never been off the menu. And so the way that we defend ourselves is we organize and we make sure that we have organizations in our communities that have people power that are able to pressure decision makers around things we care about, which is why we must care about the closing of schools and, and the demonizing of educators and the push out of black and brown people from urban spaces, because this is all about political power. It's about reclaiming land that uh, white folks evacuated in different parts of the 20th century. And so we have big work to do. We have big work to do. So I want to thank you, sister, once again, for joining us. We will definitely follow you all at Shiny Author. We will definitely go cop the book, None of the Above. I'm asking our On the Ground family, please cop the book. Please follow them on Twitter. Go to the website, sign the mailing list. Make sure you're on board. And, you know, we're going to stay posted up. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. Yes, we appreciate it so much. Your work is, is critical. So thank you. And again, support these sisters in their fight for justice. The theme of today's show is mind-blowing decisions by a group out of the, the 1970s called Heat Wave. I don't know how many of you all used to go skate. Brother G2 used to be able to get down back in the day. I used to do the crazy leg, do the big wheel and all that. But when we go skating, you'd always have the JBs, James Brown record, you know, some Funkadelic, or you'd get some Barry White you get some average white band. But then one day, this group came on called Heat Wave. And the first song that was a hit that they made was called Ain't No Half Step, which Big Daddy Kane sampled. And I told y'all before, Big Daddy Kane is one of the five greatest MCs that ever lived. But Mind Blowing Decisions was another cut they made. And the fact that these sisters and brothers are persecuted as educators as if they were mob bosses is a mind blowing decision. So we want to play that song today in tribute to the sisters and brothers in Atlanta, 
and hopefully that they will know that they are not alone in this fight. So I want to thank you all for joining us today. Check us out next week, man. And if you're looking for us, you know where you got to look on the ground. I'll talk to y'all later. Two Town Nana. Peace. I want to know So don't think